Hi, this is Mandy Griffin. And I'm Katie Swalwell. And welcome to Our Dirty Laundry. Stories of white ladies making a mess of things. And how we need to clean up our act. Everybody and welcome to our dirty laundry. I'm Mandy Griffin and Katie Swalwell. I think our intro probably says that. So now everyone's like, "We get it. Yeah, we know we who know. you are." <laughs> Although, but it's, it's been, been so, so long, long. <laughs> they might have forgotten. <laughs> yeah. Well, to remind Ooh. everyone, we are childhood friends that love each other, love history, are very passionate about anti-oppressive work, and want to do our part um, as straight, white, cis, currently able-bodied, English-speaking, U.S. citizen, upper-middle-class women, like, we've got shit to do. We've got work to yeah. do. Yeah. And part of what we want to do is learn the history that helps us be really informed and helps us catch stuff on our radars and be less shitty. Yeah. This, like, that's such a low standard. Could you be less <laughs> shitty? But I think that's probably our yeah. best... <laughs> I, I mean, you know, we've got I, a um, lot of work to do to make it to that level. So we're pretty endless, low. endless. <laughs> um, yeah, and you know, we've taken a break. I think part of it was just the end of summer. We both have young children, and that keeps you very busy. We also both work full time. I was an education professor, and now I'm a, a full time consultant that supports schools in equity, diversity, and inclusion efforts, and. Mandy works in the ER and I call yeah. her <laughs> full-time ER, you know, physician's assistant and part-time fielder of frantic friends phone calls about their medical problems. <laughs> I'm sure you yeah. love it when I call you. I've got a mole. Let me send you a picture of what it looks like. FaceTime. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I usually don't face me, but I have sent you pictures of weird things before. Um but I, I also, I mentioned this in one of the last episodes we recorded that uh, my dad is stage four pancreatic cancer and is, um, he entered hospice this summer. And so our family has just been spending as much time as we can together and helping him out. Um, my mom died of cancer when I was in my twenties, almost 20 years ago. Can you believe mm, it's been that long? I know. Um, and my stepmom lost her first husband to cancer. So our family has just been through it before and it's no fun. And if anybody's out there, going through something similar, just, you know, my heart goes out to you so much. It's so difficult and there's, you know, beautiful moments in it too, for sure. And we're, we're super, super lucky on a whole host of, of ways that this could be worse and harder and more difficult. So I'm trying to focus on that and trying to live in the moment. Um, but yeah. that is something that's been happening with us. So, yeah. And there's just no sugarcoating the fact that it's shitty and it sucks and fuck yeah. cancer. So <laughs> yeah, fuck it. So fuck it. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and thank God for people who work in hospice. Like what an unbelievable crew of people that come to support my dad and my stepmom. They're just amazing. And, um, yeah. And I think, you know, so this is, it's different grief. I mean, I'm a, I'm different than I was when I was in my twenties. Obviously that's part of it, but in some ways, like I didn't have kids. I didn't, own a house. I like, you know, I had, I could really, I had fewer things to juggle when I was grieving the loss of my mom, which was so painful and horrible. And I loved her so much and it's just, you know, still hard, Yeah. but this is also like, okay, now I started a business. I 
have two small children who are also about to lose their grandfather that they love so much. And I, you know, have my partner and have like all, you know, a yard to keep looking (laughs) disgusting. You know, there's just like stuff, other things that complicate the being able to just really sit with my grief and process it in a healthy way and try, especially I think trying to help my kids learn about death and dying and, and to not be afraid of it and to have a healthy relationship with that loss or transition, you know, it's just in some ways it makes it a lot harder. And in other ways, like they'll say things or they'll come up with a way to think about it that, that actually really helps me. You know, I don't want to lean on my five-year-old and two-year-old to be my support group, but it, it is, it can be helpful too. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's just the reality of our whole system and worlds mm-hmm. that you have to, you're also like, just like, oh, oh, there's a lot. <laughs> I have to keep going while all of this terribleness is happening because also fuck capitalism. And- I know. Oh my God. <laughs> and fascism oh. and racism yeah. and ableism right. and like everything all together. I know, I know, I know. Mm. I, I will say there, I've been trying to very deliberately seek out, um, joy. And actually I just took a picture of this quote the other day. It's in the magazine that I love uh, for educators called rethinking schools. And it has just great stories written by teachers for teachers who are concerned with justice and equity in schools. And I thought this was so powerful. The issue that's coming out right now is about joy in a time of despair. Mm -hmm. And they, the quote I pulled says, this is from the editors. Joy is not an escape from the hard realities of our world but a dive into them. And I thought there's something to that, like almost with my dad preparing to pass away. It's like so hard, but there is joy in it. If you like really engage it, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think Mm -hmm. of the massive problems that are all over, like the flooding in, in Pakistan or the situation in Jackson with water, or, I mean, there's just a million fucking awful things happening. Um, yeah. And there are people coming together in community, coming up with solutions, helping. I don't know. Maybe it's too cheesy to think of the the classic line, look for the helpers from Mr. Rogers. Mm-hmm. And I think his mom always said that to him. Yeah. But, yeah. but I did think like, okay, it, joy is not pleasure. Right. Joy is different. Yeah. And, yeah. and I do want to live my life joyfully, which doesn't mean like lots of many petties. You know, it means like being present, being connected to people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's yeah. joy. And I think there's something about there's a connection between joy and hope too. Um, mm. and I was, <laughs> I was listening to a book, um, on audible this summer, uh, which I do recommend listening to books and this one in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was called, it's called all the white friends I couldn't keep. Um, Mm. it's really good. It's written by a black man. Um, and it's not really written for white people. And I think he says Mm -hmm. that in the beginning, he's not Mm -hmm. writing it for white people. He's writing it for, you know, his black friends. But I think Mm -hmm. that white people could have a lot to learn from it about not being the kind of shitty white friends that black people can't keep. Um, Mm -hmm. but he talks Mm -hmm. a lot about hope and how he used to be like anti- hope because it just seems like this silly, (laughs) like wishing on the sky God kind of thing that was just didn't give a lot of meaning to him. But then Hmm. he did some more reading and he now like says that he reads every single day essays on hope 
um, as when he wakes up in the morning. And it comes from this book. So I bought this book that he recommended um, mm. called The Impossible Will Take a Little While, which mm. comes from the lyrics of a song that says, um, the difficult I will do now, the impossible will take a little while. I can't remember who it was. Some 60s band, I think, that sang it. But mm. it's a collection of essays on hope. And he says he gets up every morning. The first thing he does is you know, drink a cup of coffee while he reads one of the <laughs> I thought you were just going to say drink, drink. No, yeah, like, too. We sure. just start drinking. <laughs> um, but I, I got it because I thought I need something like that too, because as we mm. have discussed and I'll know before my default emotion is anger. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I have the same like knee jerk reaction against hope, like quit being so mm. fucking naive to mm. think like things. Hope is not just, this throw your hands up in the air and say like, ah, it'll all work out. Like, you know, I mm-hmm. think it's a recognition that no shit doesn't work out a lot of the time, but there's also history to show that in the struggle against all of these different awful things that we talk about yeah. all the time, there have been, there have been moments of progress and there have been things that have changed that wouldn't have, if it wasn't for the struggle and work right. of, of people really trying to make a difference. And so, you know, Hmm. I think there's more. As a very gifted athlete, um, (laughs) this sports (laughs) metaphor that comes to mind is that you're going to miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Yeah. 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 You'll still miss shots that you mm -hmm. take, but you're definitely going to miss it if you don't take it. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I appreciate that a lot. And, um, Let's post the title of both of those books in the show notes because yeah. I want to order them myself. Yeah. Um, and then maybe I can wake up and read a hope essay and not um, have to clean up an accident that a dog left all over my <laughs> kids' <laughs> dolls and cars. <laughs> That's what I spent oh. this morning cleaning up. Yep. Hey, real life. Okay. Okay. Real so life. we we talked about. Um, I think in our last episode and listen, it's been so long since we posted I know. it and I, I listened know. to it that I'm not even sure what our last episode was. <laughs> to tell you the truth. Probably people now I do know well, some people. Remember who have we been were talking up. about Oh great. Good. Yeah. Maybe that yeah. gave people some time to catch up. We were talking about like um girl power, girl bosses. The Spice Girls, like oh, yeah, that yeah. white feminism iteration. That's right. That's right. Um, and right. then that is what took us to this book um, that we're going to talk about in just a second that we'll do like a little book club for that will set us up for our next season of a deep dive into history that you most likely did not learn anywhere. Um, and there are reasons for that, <laughs> that these histories, yeah. to learn these histories in their fullness and complexity is is to be forced to reckon with them. And so there is a lot of power in keeping these histories hidden or dismissing them, gaslighting them, pretending they didn't exist, et cetera. Can I shout out one quote before we go? Because I think just as like a refresher as we dive back in Mm -hmm. and the setup for our next season. Um, I remember we had done an episode about her and that we both loved this. Um, she in the in our suffrage season, mm-hmm. right at the very beginning of everything. Mm-hmm. So Frances Ellen Watkins. Ooh, I know Harper. what quote you're gonna do. Oh, I, know. I love this quote. <laughs> I, love I always think of it as the the dewdrops quote. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Where she's just like, 
Um, I don't believe that giving white women the ballot is immediately going to cure all the ills of society. I don't believe that white women are dewdrops just exhaled from the skies. I've always loved that yes, so much. Yes, but, the but quote it goes that on. I, it does. And yes. it, this is the part that I was like, yes, 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 mm-hmm. where I almost want to make if someone out there is like crafty and wants to make a like a new theme song for us using this these lyrics. <laughs> this to me is like what we need to just read every single time we start an episode. While there exists this brutal element in society, which tramples upon the feeble and treads down the weak, I tell you that if there is any class of people who need to be lifted out of their airy nothings and selfishness, it is the white women of America. Yes. Mic drop. That was... 1866. Yeah, and it is. And sadly, here we are, 2022. And I hear it and I know it's about me and I know it's true. And I like, this is what this entire podcast is about is trying to do better. So thank you, Francis L. Watkins Harper, wherever you are. Uh, I appreciate it. I hear you. We hear you. And this is our attempt to get out of, uh, get out of being airy, nothing, selfish, dewdrop. Yes. You know, waste of space. Yes. So, okay. Yes, yes. That's where we're at. Um, okay. Do you want to introduce okay. this book? Because you actually yeah. shared it with me first. Yeah. So, and I don't remember where I found it. Um, I'm sure somebody talked about it on social media or I heard about it in another book that I was reading. Um, mm-hmm. There are, there are a lot of books that are on like white feminism and the troubles with white feminism. And then, like the mm-hmm. answer, like the counter to white feminism, what we need instead. And they're great. A lot of them, I think we could list as well as, you know, a primer for people to read. Um, and we've read a lot of them, but this one is yeah. by Ruby Hamad and it's called white tears, brown scars, how white feminism betrays women of color. Mm-hmm. Um, and it grew out of an article that, Ruby Hamad wrote for the guardian in 2018. So she wrote an article titled how white women use strategic tears to silence women of color. Um, and just a little bit about Ruby. Um, she's a journalist author and in academics, um, in media studies in Australia. Um, Mm -hmm. And she's been, her writing has also been featured in Prospect Magazine, The New Arab, um, several other publications. And she lives in Sydney and then also in New York. Um, and I think, I mean, I, I think when I first started talking about some of these books, she actually did also message me on um, our Instagram. So I need to get back. Yeah, to we her. definitely need to reconnect. Cause I'm loving this book so much. I appreciate it so much. Um, I think if I remember right, her family, um, is Syrian and Lebanese. Is that right? She yeah. talks about it a little bit. Um, mm-hmm. and, and talks about, she just is super nuanced. And I think she connects all of these different, dimensions of history in different parts of the world. I so appreciate her global focus. I think you and I can be very US centric mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I really, really appreciate these examples from all over and how they all connect. Um, yeah. so it is, it's a really, really great read and yeah, it'd be great to talk to her and just, you know, if anything, just thank her for it. But this yeah. article that she wrote in 2018, um, she writes about it in the intro of the book that it went viral and it sounds like she did not expect it to have the impact it did. And like, 
and initially kind of freaked out and, and wrote to our editors, like, take it down, take it down. This is like too, I spoke too much truth. Like I'm kind of freaked out. And then, and then thought about it and was like, no, this is, it is true. And it, I, you know, come what may, I'm going to say it. And then wrote an email back to the editors. I was laughing because I've sent similar, like, don't yeah. read this. And then like, ah, whatever, you know, like you panic about the emails you send. Yeah. But yeah. Um, then she basically just said like, okay, I'm going to do this and I'm going to, I'm going to say it. I'm going to be proud of saying it. And then of course getting uh, vitriol aimed at her and negative feedback, but also because she's, she stayed with it, a lot of outpouring of support and appreciation from all over the world yeah. from, especially from women of color who were like, yes, this is exactly my life. And she wrote about one person in particular, uh, a journalist in Kansas City. Do you remember this part? In the um, this was article. Intro in the well, she so after the article goes like globally oh, yeah, popular. Yeah. Right. Um, she said that Lisa Benson, an Emmy winning African American television journalist in Kansas City, wrote to her and it was just to say, like, here's what had happened, that she'd shared it to her private Facebook page where two of her white female colleagues, and I loved that she named them (laughs) Krista Dubill and Jessica McMaster, who I wrote in the margins of my book, petty detective, them Mandy. And I was like, no, I should do it myself. Um, So I, I looked up a little bit about them. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I, I know they are two white women. Krista, was born on an Air Force base in Louisiana and grew up in Independence, Kansas, a graduate of the University of Kansas. And she moved around the Midwest. Um, she actually looked familiar. So she, and she worked in Iowa for a time, which is where both of us are from. Um, and she's a working mom. She's got two little boys and like, yeah, you know, and she's, she's an Emmy award-winning anchor with a passion for information and apparently policing black women and shutting them down. And then Jessica McMaster um, is an investigative reporter also in Kansas city. She got, um, she worked in Michigan for a while in grand rapids, went to central Michigan university and was actually a nursing, like a nurse assistant, um, Mm. and worked in nursing homes and then became a journalist. Um, so they just, you know, they, they sound like white ladies in Kansas city who, um, took offense to what their colleague posted on her personal Facebook page. They complained about it to management. And then Lisa was suspended immediately for quote, creating a hostile working environment based on race and gender. I, and then she was terminated from her contract. So back, the backstory was that she, Lisa had sued her television station employer for racial discrimination, that they were using her race to determine which story she was assigned in really Mm -hmm. like deeply problematic ways that they sent her to interview a clan member in his home, which sounds like a terrible idea. Um, There was another African-American colleague who also had like all sorts of complaints against the station. So it it sounds like here's this person who was trying to call attention to racism and racial bias within her place of work, posts this thing on her personal page Two white women complain. And like, suddenly that lady is fired. So that sucks. And I, you know, anyway, yeah. I, I just loved that. She's like, it's <laughs> this lady emailed me that this is what happened with the article. And then that she felt like that really bad initially yeah, and was like, yeah. well, this, I, know, I liked I'm her hoping response. this helps. Yeah. I liked her response after that, that she felt like, Oh, had I not done this, then this woman wouldn't have been in this position. But she said only where were we before 
where was I before I wrote that article? Where was Lisa? Um, right. She said, even before we speak, women of color are positioned as potential aggressors. Look closer at the interactions you see at work on social media, at social functions. Make note of just how often a woman of color who stands her ground demands respect or gives anything less than overwhelmingly positive affirmation to others is met with harsh rebuke and swift ostracism. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Which I think any of us could see um, in our own examples around us. But I also, I've had uh, interactions <laughs> recently where it just reminds me of this too. You post something and you make a generalized statement that you think would garner overwhelming support, but then people just come out of the woodworks with the not all X, whatever the subject mm-hmm. is, mm-hmm. you know, it was, you know, in, in the me too, it was not all men in mm-hmm. racism things. It's like not all white people in mm-hmm. this most recent example where I posted something about, um, the recent news article that came out about a BYU fan calling a Duke volleyball player. Um, oh, I actually saw that news story and was yeah. going to ask you about it, yeah. knowing like your usually to be way you racial slurs for that. And I posted something, and immediately the first comment I get is, "Not all of us are like that. Not all don't put all of us in that category." And I'm like, "What is wrong with people that we see these things, and instead of our first reaction being?" yes, this is disgusting. Even if I find myself to be part of this group, this is disgusting and I'll call it out because I don't want it in my group. Right. right. Instead, the reaction is, oh, like this feigned, like, how dare you? Not all of us are like that. You're being so unfair. I feel like Mm -hmm. we have to recognize that as basically what then Ruby Habad goes on to talk about as positioning Mm -hmm. ourselves as victims and exactly. the damsels in distress instead of yes right confronting the problem. So if there's anything where you see yourself as that being your initial reaction as initial like defensiveness, that should be a trigger to white people or any privileged group of people that that reaction's a problem. Like mm-hmm. step back for a second when you do that and and recognize it for what it is, I think. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. Ugh. Yep. Anyway. I know. We'll we'll link to this article the that kind of sparked the book. It sounds like that's what happened. She's, you know, a journalist and she wrote this and then it leads to her writing a a book, like a deeper dive into yeah. these ideas. Yeah. Um but that's exactly it like calling out white women for being damsels in distress, for playing the victim and doing it really knowingly and strategically. Um it and it doesn't need to be knowing or strategic to still have a you know, a terrible effect, Mm -hmm. but, uh, that it can be and has been, and is often, uh, very intentional. Um, so she writes about too, like the, the videos that started going viral about like barbecue Becky Mm -hmm. or permit Patty, or, you Mm -hmm. know, these Mm -hmm. white women, like really, you know, getting caught on tape doing exactly what this article explains people are doing. Um, and making it really, really hard to deny. But I agree about that, the instinct to distance ourselves from that phenomenon or to then try to route the conversation or the learning towards somehow letting ourselves off the hook for something like that is just an absolute waste and mm-hmm. distraction and undercuts what needs to happen, which is attention on the problem yeah. and figuring it out. And Ruby Hamad, just like, 
uh, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper says that this is white women's responsibility. And it, she says, this is page eight. It is up to white women to stop this destructive behavior. She's um, citing sister outsider there. So yeah, just enough with that. And I really, I appreciate that then this first part of the book, because when I first started reading it, because the title says how white feminism betrays women of color, and I expected Mm -hmm. it to get right into like a deep dive of white feminism and all the problems Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that have happened with it. But she actually takes the first part um, to kind of set up how this happened, like how we got here, which I really, Mm -hmm. I appreciate the history of it because I think you just pointed to it where maybe sometimes it's not intentional. A lot of times it is, but even if it's Mm -hmm. not intentional, it comes from this very deep historical framework Mm -hmm. that was set up before any of us individually entered into this space, but we still either benefit from or are harmed from it or both because it is such a deeply rooted history, not only in the United States, because a lot of the examples she talks about are colonialism in other parts of the world too. Right. Um, right. Because it's everywhere really. Right. Um, and so this first section, she calls it the setup. Uh, mm-hmm. And then she goes through all of these examples. So I don't know well, if there's anything. And lays out, oh, well, oh yeah, there was so much. And honestly, I there was so much that struck me from previous seasons we've done of this podcast that, mm-hmm. you know, learning about white women's involvement in slavery and, and being able to interview Stephanie Jones Rogers and talk to her about her work, historical work that she's done about white women's roles. You know, there there were a, there was a lot about the archetypes. I think she even names that. Yeah. Um, which made me think Megan Markle's podcast that just came out and is the number Ooh. one podcast in the world called Archetypes, where she's oh, oh. diving into the history of these different archetypes and interviewing people who are living them today, you know, living with the consequences of these archetypes. So um, there's so many that she talks about, like Dragon Lady and the angry black woman or angry brown woman and um, mammies. Yeah. And, you know, just goes through a whole range. And usually it's like hyper sexed or super submissive you know and she talks about the the binaries um as being what it is that that is at the heart of white supremacy and at the heart of colonialism and the heart of capitalism like all the all of those forces that are so deeply intertwined that these are there are these false binaries that get set up and i was really um i know we've talked about that and been learning about it and talking to our guests about that quite a bit but i it just really hit home for me in a different way when I was reading about this, that the, that any effort to transgress these binaries is just met with such massive, violent resistance mm-hmm. and pushback. And, and I think we're seeing that in terms of the efforts to roll back so many rights and freedoms right now in the United States that it, it, a lot of these issues on the surface might seem disconnected, but they're so, so deeply intertwined. Um, so there's here's a quote on page 69 I really liked about how 
there any attempts to transgress the man-woman binary was considered not only a threat to white patriarchy, but to Western civilization. The binary permitted white men to ruthlessly abuse women of color with no consequence. As civilized men, they were spared any burden of guilt or remorse since it was literally regarded as their rightful role not to feel sympathetic or sentimental. And, and just the way that binary, whether it's a gender binary, sex binary, racial binary, whatever it is that helps to secure all of this, I, I was just moved. There's another quote about it on page 73. Um, Through a series of distorted and self-serving representations and repetitions, the West created a series of binaries that came to be seen as immutable laws of nature, if they are even seen by many at all. Man, woman, East, West, civilized, savage. Binary oppositions, oversimplified as they are, leave no room for individual distinctions and complexity. Um, And I, so I thought, like, the ways that those categories are inescapable to a sense and do provide some people community or like words to name what's happening to them. And that's what I think gets complicated. Like there, there is some material reality that gets constructed as a result of creating those binaries, but that they're ultimately false, you know, and that efforts to transgress them get a huge, very public, violent shutdown, you know? Yeah. And, and, um, it says that there's another quote on 43 page 43 that I think relates directly to that. It says, Hmm. this is how colonialism rigged the game Hmm. against women of color for centuries. Mm -hmm. The West has regurgitated representations of colonized women that came to be accepted as more real than the real Jezebel's Mm -hmm. black velvet, harem girls, China dolls, princess Pocahontas, all of these reduced complex human beings to cardboard cut out sexual objects without agency and whose surrendered sexuality was de facto justification for white supremacy. Colonialism rigged the game against all colonized women by reducing them to characters that were at once desirable and disgusting, conveniently allowing white men to both sexually abuse them and render them beneath sexual abuse. Um, yeah. I mean, I think, that there's some, like you said, there's something real in it and then it becomes more than the reality as well. Yeah. Um, well, and this just, again, thinking about our current world in 2022, just how much of this is so relevant, like efforts to restrict reproductive rights and freedoms, um, efforts to police people's gender expression and gender identity and threats to roll back any sort of rights or protections for LGBTQIA plus people, you know, that they're again, like on the very, very surface, it may not seem obvious how those are all connected, but this is another quote on page 89 that links all of this to colonialism, particularly, um, which is something I don't think we've tapped into enough. So we'll get into what we want to do about that. But this quote, I thought was really powerful too. Uh, To understand race in the settler colonial context, we must understand the centrality of sex It all came down to sex. Who was allowed to have it, when, and with whom? It was through sex work that some white women were able to assert financial and social independence. It was through rape that slavery was enforced and reinforced. And honestly, like, literally sustained, you know, because the black women that white men raped would become, they were enslaved too. So you're like making more people to enslave. And it was through procreation that whiteness and white male authority could be both bolstered and undermined. Segregation, lynching, and black peril all occurred for the same reasons to keep white men on top. And we can add so many of other 
parts to that from previous seasons, like mm-hmm. reproductive justice, voting rights, etc. White society then hinged on the myth of, quote, protecting white women from rape. But in reality, what they were really protected from was their own liberation in any capacity to form meaningful relationships with people of color. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh. I also, speaking of that, like how slavery was perpetuated through rape back on page mm-hmm. 83 she says <laughs> think about how dehumanized black people were yeah. in the minds of whites for this to happen white men kept their own children as slaves or sold them to be enslaved by others but were freed from any moral responsibility because the children's blackness automatically excluded them from white society i mean mm-hmm. just the absolute depravity and sickness of how black people were dehumanized to a point where men could literally view their own offspring as not meaningful and not like not human, Mm -hmm. like have Mm -hmm. no attachment to them. Like there it's beyond fucked up. Like that's just something my mind has little capacity to understand. I don't. Well, Oh no. I mean, and, Honestly, thank God. If you were like, "Uh, you know, I get it. (laughs) I'd be deeply worried about you. Um, Well, I I am excited about what we want to dive into next. And really, it was inspired by this first part of Ruby Human's book um, is thinking more about colonialism and thinking about it in relation to this archetype of damsel in distress, Mm -hmm. because so much of of how colonialism was sold, how it was experienced, how it happened hinges on that archetype of damsel in distress and mm-hmm. was part of what created it. So I, I'm really, um, I, I, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to learning a lot more and to expanding our view beyond the United States to look at a lot of different parts of the world that are all interconnected through colonialism. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's going to be great. One part that I thought was really important to lay out in terms of how Ruby Hamad describes this archetype of damsel in distress is that they're always white women that no one else is allowed to be a damsel in distress. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, so that's like point one of this archetype. And the second is that the damsel was never ever intended to be a victim of white men. Right. Right. And she goes on to say that um, a white man raping a white woman is not a threat to white male power. And if it destroys or threatens to destroy the woman's life, then so be it. Again, I just kept thinking about like, Abortion, you know, like, well, the white, you know, not even white woman, but like any woman or any person who's giving birth could die. Well, you know, yep. so yep. it's like that kind of attitude. It doesn't threaten us. So fine. Mm-hmm. And this, I believe, is why, despite all our claims, our society still does not take violence against women seriously. When perpetrated by white men, frequently either such violence is ignored or the blame is heaped onto the victim. It is only when white women are violated or even imagined to be violated by non-white men, that white society suddenly seems to find its moral compass. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it's right. the same with so much. Like, that moral compass only exists when laid over how it affects white people. Right. I mean, even just thinking about what's happening in Jackson, Mississippi right now, and the water water crisis and what happened in Flint, like, those kinds of things are not happening in white majority cities that are run by white people. You know, it's like right. there, there is this outrage or more compass or an article I just read about what was happening in Pakistan and the amount of money that poured into the Ukraine to support, you know, refugees and to 
displacement in the war and the massive, like the um, number of people, it's like the same as the population of California. It's the amount of land that, that is the, is equivalent to like the United Kingdom. And I hate to put those in terms of like, Hey, white people, you, you know, these points of reference, but it's massive numbers of people and massive amounts of land that are just destroyed. And a lot of people who are dying are children. And the amount of aid is a fraction of what was going to these other things. So just thinking about like that moral outrage Mm -hmm. or even ability to like say something is wrong uh, or that something even happened, like even to acknowledge it at all. Some of the stories that she gives I, I know we keep saying this, like, how can we still be shocked by some of this history? Um, but these stories were just absolutely bonkers of what people were willing to ignore or lie about or just fabricate completely yep. to to keep this damsel distress archetype alive. So yeah. I, it's something I'm really I'm eager for us to dive into. Well, and it makes me want to shake the white women who take advantage of the damsel in distress and say, wake up. Mm -hmm. Like there there are, there's a, obviously a group of white women who take some sort of uh, comfort in this protected class that they're in Mm -hmm. and see it as some Mm -hmm. sort of virtuous thing. But the reality of it is like, Mm -hmm. no, you're not valued because you're a human being. You're not, valued to the rest of white men because of that you're valued as being seen as property which is what she says in this like the rage against the violation of white women is not fueled by an anger at the violation of their body but as a violation of white men's property yeah they she says they believe they own the sexuality of women and that's what the they get angry at that's what they're protecting is their ownership of that and not letting anyone Mm -hmm. else in on that um she -hmm. says she quotes this letter that was written in south carolina's the rosebud rosebud in 1832 that said if a female possesses beauty wealth and in short all the accomplishments which wealth can purchase without virtue she is worth nothing her accomplishments may be admired by some for a little while, it is true, but she will never be truly esteemed. And Hamad says, there was literally nothing, not a thing that a white woman could ever have that was worth more than her sexual virtue. So this mm-hmm. whole thing is not about actually valuing, even valuing white women as humans. Mm-hmm. It's in the same time it says like the this damsel in distress mm-hmm. trope is is a way for women to exercise limited power, but it requires white women to adhere to strict rules to be accepted. Mm-hmm. And that's what you're still operating under when you accept this role as a white woman, which it's like, stop that too. Like, wake up. It makes yeah. me think of the argument um, that has been used lately in like the abortion rights and other um, gendered rights where you see like people make an argument like, but she's think of her as your wife. Think of her as your sister. Think of her as your mother. And instead of that, like there's this shirt that I'm, that I'm imagining right now. And it says she's somebody's wife, sister, mother, aunt. And it has all of those crossed out so that it just said, she's somebody like <laughs> the ownership of it. The fact 
that the mm-hmm. set up that you even have to be in relation to someone else to matter is the bullshit mm-hmm. of all of it when it comes down to any of these tropes that we're discussing that just that people women are humans is a basic thing that we even in our enlightened what we like to think of as progressive circles have not even really grasped as the argument there doesn't need to be anything else besides that uh-huh. Well, and exactly your point about recognizing our role as tools in that and like going along with it. And I know this is like quote talk with me and Katie. (laughs) Whenever we read a book, I think that's what happens, but it's just beautiful. And we really encourage people to buy it. It's fantastic. Um, We'll link to it in the show notes too, but there's this other great quote. This is a little bit longer one, but bear with me. This is page 100. Um, So she's talking about white supremacy here. and, And she says for it to succeed and appear natural at the same time, which I think is what is so insidious is like, not only do you get it to work, but then you get people to think that's the only way it can be. And it's just like a natural thing happening. Mm-hmm. Necessitated the manipulation of the image of virtuous white women to represent the white race as one of impeccable morals, far superior to the sex crazed and animalistic inferior races, and therefore the peak of civilization. That right there is exactly where I want to dive into the history of colonialism because it's all like that's all that it's about. Mm-hmm. At the same time, the damsel's true purpose was to prevent the races from mixing and procreating freely, equally, and happily. The damsel in distress is always white because in order to justify white men's self-granted right of access to the body of any woman they chose, regardless of how she felt about it, only white women were considered capable of being in distress, of being raped. Think about this for a moment. Rather than consider respecting the bodies of brown and black women, white men and their female accomplices remove them from the concept of womanhood and humanity altogether. Chivalry, Quote, protecting white women by restricting their movements and suppressing their sexuality, imprisoning brown men, lynching and executing black men, raping colonized women. All of this bolstered white male and by extension, white female power, while conveniently absolving white people of any wrongdoing by permitting them to project their own sexual violence onto black and brown men and then to punish them ruthlessly. Yeah. So fucked up. Mm. Okay. Yep. 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 Um, yeah, I don't know if you want to dive into like any of her archetypes or if we just want to get into that, like when we do the colonialism, I think, I think that probably, and Mm -hmm. hopefully people will read along with us and, you know, read the book and dig in a bit, but I think all of those will come up and I'm not sure yet how we should tackle it. Like chronologically, geographically. Yeah. Yeah. We'll try to figure that out. It might make sense to do it like region, even though I know there's so much overlap and connection and like all sorts of things. By the way, I'm so distracted. We can see each other when we record these. Mm-hmm. And what is happening with my hair right now? <laughs> I don't even know how it is doing that. It's standing on end. My The texture of my hair has changed so much since giving birth. And so I need to learn how to do it, but I don't really care. So that's that. Um, <laughs> side note. Side, side note. No. Don't care. Um, okay. Well, there's, there is one other part that I wanted to read because I just like, I literally sat with it, read it again, sat with it, read it again. Um, it, it just, it goes to the title of the book. It's mm-hmm. in a, it, it made me think about so much that's happening right now when it's facts 
And people are trying to gaslight the facts. They're trying to tell you that those aren't what you're seeing isn't real. Like uh, whether it's the whatever the document situation is that's happening in Mar-a-Lago, like any of these news stories will seem dated if you're listening to this probably even days later because the news cycle moves so fast. But it's not like just this week that that's happening. It's this bigger effort to get people to to not believe what they see right in front of them, mm-hmm. you know, to get people mm-hmm. b- to believe that it's not raining when they're getting wet. Yeah. And so it's a deeper fear and concern I have just about that, like an appreciation and acknowledgement of just facts that mm-hmm. you cannot deny. Mm-hmm. So here's what Ruby Hamad says. It's just, oh, she's such a good writer too. The crimes of white supremacy have not gone unrecorded. They are etched into the bodies of Brown and black people the world over. Our scars, past and present, physical and emotional, bear witness to the violence white men and women insisted they were not inflicting. White society marked the bodies of women of color as a receptacle for its sins so that it may claim innocence for itself. And as the chosen symbol of the innocent perfection of whiteness, the white damsel with her tears of distress functions as both denial of and absolution for this violence. But absolution is not for the perpetrator to grant, and white people will eventually have to reckon with the true horror of their own brutal history. Frances Harper's challenge rings as clear in its truth now as ever, whether white women are ready to face it or not. For women of color to be free of racism, and for white women to be rid of patriarchy, it is the damsel who must be damned. Yes, I'm so glad you read that because if that's not what you were going to read, I was going to read that next. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, we have to end on that. Damn that yeah, damsel. Damn, and we've got to learn. We're going to learn more about yeah. her, us, how that happens. And don't. Yeah. Don't do it. Don't yes, do it. Don't. Don't, don't cry <laughs> those crocodile bullshit tears when you know mm. that it's just a way of protecting yourself and getting out of actually owning up to your shit. Um, and call people mm. out when you see them doing it. That's the other mm. thing. Like, we have to really, I think if we're truly going to call ourselves like allies, co-conspirators, like really want this to stop, Mm -hmm. we Mm -hmm. also cannot stand by and allow it to continue happening when we witness it. So Mm -hmm. don't do it. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I can't wait for learning. This is unrelated, but maybe connected. Can I pose this like Mm -hmm. ethical dilemma to you? Okay. So the other day we have these family dinners to be with my dad so that the grandkids can be there. Like everyone can be together once a week. I mean, we see him more than that, but just for everyone to be there at the same time. So we were playing out, the kids were playing out in the backyard and this, the yard backs up to this other yard that there isn't a fence or anything. And there's never been kids playing out there before, but there's a little girl who lives there and there were other kids that were playing. And one of the little boys, a white little boy had a Nerf gun. And was shooting it at our kids and then using it to make them run away from these like kind of fun balls to play with that our kids are playing with. And then he took the balls and protected them with his Nerf gun. And so our kids came over to tell us what was going on. And so I like angry grown up walk <laughs> towards the kids who scatter, you know, mm-hmm. and then this one little boy I like glared at across the yard and, um, basically interrogated him like what's happening. And, you know, then thought that it had been cleared up. So I go back to hang out with my dad and everybody else and the kids keep playing. And then there's a, the, the kids with the Nerf gun, one of their balls got sent over into our yard. And so my niece picked it up and chucked it as far as she could the other direction. <laughs> 
And my, my sister and I were both like, oh, you know, no, take the high road. Um, and it kind of, you know, like intervened. And my daughter was so mad and she's like, mom, no, you have to teach those people not to do that like that. And then you, the way you teach them is by like showing them how it feels, you know? And I was like, I don't know. And I kind of like pushed back on her and she, she was just adamant and she wasn't being, um, belligerent with me. She was just like 1000% sure she was right. So she was just very matter of fact, like, no, (laughs) I'm going to. I'm going to do that if it happens again, you know, and uh-huh, you can be uh-huh. mad at me and that's okay. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. just like, what do you, what, and, and I'm asking because also yeah. in the context of all of this and like the idea of calling people out, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I'm just curious what you think. About well, that. I mean, I guess there's the idea of calling people out versus calling people in, which there's only some people you can call in oh, if they sure. don't want to be, then it's just going to have to yeah. be calling out. But I mean, I'm sure you know that I fall more on the side of making people <laughs> uncomfortable. <laughs> And I I do, I don't think it has to be eye for an eye or like, you know, I'm going to become just as bad as them. But I don't, I think that's also a false setup. Like the idea that it's just as bad to call someone out for bad behavior as to allow the bad behavior. Like, no, there is a, there's a right and a wrong in this um, scenario. And I think that you can acknowledge that. I mean, I... There's probably a way to do it that is either like that's better or worse, that's helpful or not helpful. Um, <laughs> but I think I still think it needs to be done. I think like that part of white supremacy is this idea that mm-hmm. we are um, that we have a right to our comfort, and mm-hmm. I think that mm-hmm. that also has to be broken down. Like no. You don't, you can be called out and we, we don't have the right to stay comfortable and not say anything in situations yeah. that might not affect us. Like, I think we have to get out of that spot and I think be that, willing to sit right, in discomfort. Yes. Well, and so the, I think the reason I thought of this story in relation to what we're talking about is I'm raising two white kids as mm-hmm. a white person with a white partner mm-hmm. and I know that there are times that I'm educating them into whiteness that I haven't really thought through. Mm -hmm. And I think this was one of those moments, even though all of the kids from what I could tell were white kids Mm -hmm. interacting with each other, that doesn't mean we still aren't teaching whiteness in that moment in the absence of people of color. Often that's the most, like a lot of whiteness gets taught in those set of circumstances. So there was part of me that, that was just really reflecting on that. Like how much of this is, is this what Ruby Juan is talking about? Like me teaching my niece and my daughter who are white little girls about how to be white women to try to make this little white boy, you know, to not antagonize him or to, you know, and I'm probably making it more complicated than it needs to be, but I think think it is that complicated. Yeah, I think it is like, we don't think of these interactions as complicated, but they are, they are where people learn all of that socialization Mm -hmm. and how to interact then in other situations. Um, yeah. And I, I, I also think of the, the famous Michelle Obama quote when she said, mm. when, when they we go, go low, they, they, yeah, when they go low, we go we, high. We go, yeah. We go low. <laughs> when they go low, when they go we low, go we go yeah. high. I, yes. I, I which mean, I have a lot of admiration for that. I really do. I'm some, like a generally, but high then road some person. I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> fuck that. Like, where's that gotten us? 
Like, well, like, and this is, this is the nuance. Like, this is where I really struggle because, and I, I mean, I know it was Michelle Obama saying that too, that as a white woman, I can risk more Mm -hmm. for less consequence. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I don't want to go in like, boom, boom, like, I'm going to tell that kid to fuck off because it's like, you have to recognize that not everyone is in a position to do that. Or if they do, they're risking way more than we are. Right. Which is why I think as white women, we have to like take, we have to take that quote unquote limited power that we've been given and use it differently than we have Mm. been used. Like obviously Mm. Michelle Obama is also in a socialized position, which is exactly what Ruby Hamad calls out in this, where it's like how, how quickly she gets shut down and demonized and you know, all sorts of things. If she's anything but the most pleasant of human beings at all times, that, I think that quote just probably embodies what she's had to do in order to survive as a black woman in a very prominent position that people see her in. But I think that's where it comes to the place of white women to say, we're not going to feed into that anymore. Like we're not going to say that's who Mm -hmm. you have to be, or that's who we have to be to be accepted. Um, Well, I think especially when it comes to, Again, just thinking about this very specific interaction of like the little kids, you know, mm-hmm. um, and also to whoever, whatever parent gave that kid a Nerf gun that he shot at my kids. I want to I have some <laughs> choice words for that adult. But um, I, I do think there's something that I'm just becoming more and more vigilant about, like teaching my daughter to try to make everything nice and calm and to not like upset, you know, and and of course I don't do this all the time. This was just like one very poignant moment that Mm -hmm. like made me laugh, made me cringe, made me think like all at once, you know, and, and just her absolute refusal, a respectful refusal to me to say like, that's not right. What that kid did was wrong Mm -hmm. and I'm not going to let it happen. And, and I, again, I actually like very much am inspired by, I appreciate that message from Michelle Obama, but I do, I do think it's not either, or like mm-hmm. e- there's a high road and there's a low road. I, I think it's more complicated than that too. Mm-hmm. And for white women, or for those of us who are raising little white girls and little white boys, little white people that I, it is something I really want to think a lot about. Like, what am I correcting or trying to correct? What am I celebrating and encouraging in terms of how she responds to behavior that is hurtful, harmful, mm-hmm. inappropriate, and how, she, how she's becoming aware of the nuances and context of those situations. And I know she's five, but she is already aware of a lot of that. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I, I just, anyway, I don't have any answer or like (laughs) ironclad analysis, but it was just this thing that happened that I cannot shake. And I just, as I was reading Ruby Hamad's book, I just kept thinking about more and more, especially as my kids get older and Thea is now in kindergarten and she's going to be around friends and school and these little, you know, interactions. And I, I don't want to raise a white woman Mm -hmm. who employs white tears. I don't want to be that. I don't want to replicate that with my own kids. So it's just, I don't know, food for that. I'm yep. sure we'll get into it a lot more yeah. in this upcoming season, but we've got part two for the next episode of this podcast. And then hopefully it would be amazing to talk with Ruby Hamad. And, um, so yeah, we'll, we'll reach, reach out, out to her, her for mm-hmm. sure. But, um, yeah, thanks to everybody for listening. It's so good to see you. I'm glad we're back. To be back. Yeah.
yeah. the booth. I say yeah. the booth as if it's not like your closet in my basement. That's but, right. You know. <laughs> That's what we got. All right. So we, yeah. we'll talk to you again next week. Thanks. Have guys. a good day, everybody. Bye.